0: Welcome to
1: Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan.
0: And Cassidy Zachary. So I am going to actually just start listing some iconic and beloved films that our listeners may have heard of. April, you can also let me know if any of these ring a bell. Um, So I'm going to start with 1980s, now classics, Cocktail. Yes, yes. Fatal Attraction. Yes. Wall Street. Yes. (laughs) Moving into the 1990s, we have Basic Instinct, Speed, Twister. All of the above.
1: (laughs) And I just want to say Michael Douglas's Gordon Gecko in Wall Street still remains a style icon to this very day. And also, who doesn't remember Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct? (laughs) You know, and for our intents and purposes, who doesn't remember... Sharon Stone in a very specific two-piece white suit from a very particular scene in Basic (laughs)
0: Instinct. It's quite hard to forget, let's be honest. Uh, There's also April, the 90s cult classic Showgirls.
1: Right, which is possibly one of my all-time favorite movies. Nice nails, darling. (laughs) Just saying. Um, Because (laughs) there, besides all of the fun costumes and all the fashion, there is, of course, Elizabeth Berkeley's mispronunciation and intentional mispronunciation of Versace when she says Versace. And that will forever go down in movie fashion history.
0: Yes, it will. And then we're going to continue later in the decade. We have the 1997 flicks Starship Troopers and Disney's Cinderella starring Brandy and Whitney Houston, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. Moving into the 21st century, it gets even more fantastical with Maleficent Mistress of Evil, The Greatest Showman, and the runaway Netflix hit of our dreams, April Bridgerton.
1: Yes. So, Bridgerton fans... Bait your breath, we're going to get to that, but before (laughs) that, this is quite the eclectic roster of projects that we have just listed off here, Cass, and ones that have a very special person to thank, and it's today's guest. We are so pleased to welcome costume designer Ellen Mirajnik to the show today to discuss her 40-plus year career in fashion, film, and television. Ellen, welcome to Dressed.
0: Ellen, welcome to Dressed. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. Cassidy,
2: it's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Yeah, and so I know we are here to talk about your incredible career in costume design, but once I started researching you and digging into the fashion archive, I was so pleased to learn that you were in fact a fashion designer before you transitioned into film and TV. So I'm hoping you can tell us about how you became a fashion designer, did clothing, have any sort of formative role in your upbringing? What brought you to that profession?
2: Well, actually, it's a pretty it, the the story's not lengthy, but it's pretty precise. <laughs> I grew up in New York, and my dad was in the fashion industry.
0: Oh. So at
2: first, going to school, I did everything in my power not to be in the fashion industry. Right. (laughs) Um, I I, actually, my biggest dream was to just be a fine artist, paint and paint and paint and paint and other medium as well. But that was my dream. And it basically was not practical. So what happened was, is that I went to the, the School of Visual Arts for photography I could not take a picture in focus, and my photography teacher said, "You know, they're very interesting, but I can't promise you a career (laughs) in photography. Um, You should brace your hands or or have a drink before you shoot something to steady you." Which then led me to um, visual arts. Was young at that time, and I met the teacher's teacher who basically, I always called Jack Potter, the man who taught me how to see. And what I mean by that is that not only did I spend my time non-matriculating with everything, every class that he taught, but it was fashion design, it was life drawing, it was painting, it was interpretive drawing, et cetera. And how he taught me to see was to always see the negative space, how the negative space informed what you were drawing. So from that, after a couple of years doing that, I decided, well, I'm gonna go to Parsons School of Design. And I became a student at Parsons School of Design. And at that time, I had to start from the beginning, which was the foundation part, which you learn everything once again, actually all over again with the exception of pattern making and draping. You always had a design project every week in which you, whatever the topic was, you sketched 10 sketches, presented, et cetera. Well, it was the good news and the bad news. I loved fashion. I could not make a pattern and I could not drape. I could not sew. I could make a hem, but that was about it. And I couldn't sew. And it didn't fare well for my design career. And um, they said, Ellen, one day you'll be a designer. We can't tell you when, but you can't do anything here correctly. So I think we have to leave. (laughs) So I left and they actually, and and the administrator said, you know, it would be a good idea if you, we'll let you back in, we'll let you back in because you really do have a lot of talent. And I said, I'm not interested, (laughs) right? So I decided to go out into the world and my aunt and I did some kind of funky jewelry that was really not obscure. It was ironic. Let's put it that way. It was ironic kind of jewelry. And we happened to meet a man. We were sent to a man by the name of Bernie Ozer. And Bernie Ozer at that time was the head of Federated Department Stores. And he was the man. I would say he was the Wizard of Oz behind all of what junior sportswear was to become in this country and subsequently the world as well. And he loved what we did. And I was a young girl who looked like a very funky young girl at that time. And um He said to me, What do you want to do? And I said, Well, I want to design clothing. And he said, Well, what do you want to design? I said, I want to design junior sportswear. And he said, Okay, you stay here and you'll come every day to my office. And it was a a hub of activity that was so inspired. But every day he would say, "Mm." I think it was every day, felt like every day. He'd send me out onto the street and tell me my chore was this, my assignment, not a chore. My assignment was come back and tell me three trends that you see. And I would go looking, I would be the scout who would go looking to find three trends. I'm using the word trend, but I do not think that it was the word then. I don't remember what the directions, maybe it was something more like directions. And I would come back every day with that. And that was fabulous. It was, it, he made me walk in fashion shows. He made me, I mean, it was just, he he allowed me the experience of what fashion was all about and the direction that fashion was headed. At that time, he was the biggest Jack Potter, Bernie Ozer, those two men were absolutely at the forefront of where I was to begin my two mentors. This was a time of Getty Miller, Willie Smith, um, myself, (laughs) and uh, Norma Kamali was in business at the time. She had this lovely very, very adorable, cute. That's terrible words to use with Norma. She's brilliant, but um, fabulous little store on 53rd street in New York. And, and Betsy Johnson had a store called Betsy Bunky and Ninny. And it was such an inspired time. It was, I, I don't remember a time as inspired as that time. Everything was new. Okay. So Bernie Oza introduced me to these two men, Herb Schneiderman and Gene Kuehl, and they were the owners and uh, masters of a company called Happy Legs. And Gene Kuehl was very much the showman, very much the showman. He loved theatrics. He loved presenting with a, a nod to movies, theater, everything. Subsequently, we met in this office. I don't even remember being interviewed, to be honest. And, and Bernie said, you have to hire her. She's brilliant. I want her to make a new line, not happy legs. I want her to do something called, and Jean said something called stage struck. And Herbie then said, and your name will be Ellen Starr with two R's. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, okay, fine. What do I report? And it was a great, and I did, I went to work for them, and it was the it, it was hugely exciting. It was a hugely exciting line. So I made a collection and I remember the collection being plaid and tweed. And it was green, like a really rich Kelly Green, red, yellow. And and a deeper green that it revolved, everything revolved around all the pieces worked together. It was a really pretty sensational, I would say, I kind of remember it being like a 10-piece collection, 12-piece collection. And it was great fun. I think that it did well. I had my own presentation at Bloomingdale's at that time on the second floor, which was the place to be. And it did okay, I, I suspect. I think it did okay. We did it for quite a, a bit of time.
0: I have to ask you a couple more questions about Happy Legs because we're talking about the 1970s in, in New York fashion, which is like the era of American fashion design. As you mentioned, everyone's coming into their own. There's so many fabulous designers working. Happy Legs is this company that's, from what I found in my research, is dedicated to creating... Pants for women. It was all about at least some of the earlier ads are about both men and women enjoying pants, which is this radical idea that comes out of the 1960s. But what I found so fascinating in my research is that I found this fabulous article from Women's Wear Daily in 1971, and Gene Cool actually names you as the inspiration for the line. Mm-hmm. He, he says He's like, we're not having her working in the design room. We're not having her locked away out of contact with buyers. We think she can sell this merchandise without even saying a word because she epitomizes the look of the 1940s. And then they go on to describe what you're wearing.
2: The 40s was a very, very big influence. And it was actually the Saint Laurent show in that time that was the very, very, I remember those, those fabulous patent leather wedge shoes. That were gorgeous and it just chubbies and it said it it inspired me so much. I'd love to see that article. I don't even remember it.
0: Well, let me share my screen with you because I want to show you because I found a bunch of references to you. Can you see that?
2: Yes, 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 yes. That's what it was. Yeah.
0: So I love this ad because it's freshest stars of the fashion flicks for all those liberated chicks.
2: (laughs) God bless you that's fabulous
0: and then here's some of your
2: pants i think in this i think this is a cosmopolitan ad that was it what i'm looking at now this young woman the cherries were very big
0: yeah this red jacket 17 magazine this is starstruck again um, from seventy one, this is that article that talks all about you, and I'm happy to send this to you.
2: Please do, please do. I'd love it. I'd love it. Yeah, the Midas Touch, Gene Kuhl. Gene Kuhl was an extraordinary innovator, and he used to sell. He used to run the whole showroom, and Herb Schneiderman worked um, the inside, having everything done, but made. But it, it was a hugely exciting time. I mean, I couldn't believe what I was able to do when they threw me out of school. I got to do my own line. I mean, what can I say, you know?
0: Yeah, it's so wonderful. Uh, here's another ad, what to wear on Sunday when you won't be home till Monday. So again, it's, it's a woman in pants and a man in trousers as well. So I want to talk to you about this because okay. this is the 1970s. Uh, in fashion, which is really the era of the American designer. Women's Wear Daily does this fabulous 40-page spread on the best in New York fashion. And we're talking about all of these recognizable names from the fashion industry today. So Calvin Klein, Oscar De La Renta, Halston, Diane Van Furstenberg, Donna Karan, and you are featured.
2: <laughs> I love it. Oh, I'm so pleased. I'm so
0: pleased. Here is your section in the best in New York. Ellen Morajnik for Happy Legs. <gasps> so I just thought that was so amazing. I'm like, you were one of these named known designers. You're not hiding behind the label. You were the selling point of this brand. And I just think that's so fabulous.
2: Thank you for bringing this into my life at this particular moment. It is pretty extraordinary. They changed my name back obviously Ellen, <laughs> Yes, they did Ellen Star because I, that, I think that was like kind of silly. But the, but you know I love these guys so much because they supported everything and actually knew when I would have samples done. They knew what the note needed to be. They knew what needed to be shift. They knew what needed to be elaborated on. They knew what they, they knew at that particular moment, what the world was moving towards. And everything was quite directional at that time. It was the most original time in fashion, I think, in fashion history.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the era of the Battle of Versailles. Of course, American designers going to Europe and just showing, you know, really putting their name on the international stage. And you're very much part of that conversation. And what I love about your work too is you're empowering women in this new era of sportswear where they can wear pants to the office <laughs> in in the in public and in, on the street. All of your designs from this era where I see the ads, women are in motion and these are another Women's Wear Daily ad that's all about your lineup for Happy Legs from
2: 1976. Uh, just to an aside, Herb Schneiderman, the man on the inside, really was my 100% mentor in the world of business, the world of fashion, the world of the business of fashion. And Everything that had to be done. He was my mentor of how to speak to people, how to be with people, how to work in a design room, how to work with a pattern maker, how to work with an assistant, how to create a collection, how to move like the speed of sound. So it it was a really great partnership all around. But I love these articles. You must send them to me.
0: I will. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's so fascinating too that you, you know, you like leave Parsons because, you know, you didn't fit into what they defined as a fashion designer and then go on to this wonderful career as a fashion
2: designer. Cassidy, I was I didn't just leave. I was asked to leave. I was asked to leave (laughs) and they never invited me back to get like a, a, a degree in any way. They were just so insulted. Well, you definitely showed them. <laughs> yeah, I did. I guess I did. I did show them. So the
0: last mention, I'm going to share this with you too, because the last mention in Women's Wear Daily in relationship to your fashion career was in the 1977. And there's this image of you yourself wearing the latest floral trend. So I thought that was lovely to actually find you in Women's Wear Daily. But then the next mention is not for 10 more years. And it's in regard to your costume design career. The next mention of you in this particular database I was looking at is from 1987 And you're all over the archive in 1987. You're cited and interviewed numerous times for your incredibly influential designs for not a collection, but a film, Wall Street, starring Michael Douglas and Charlie Sheen. So at this point, you had actually been designing costumes for almost a decade.
2: So what prompted this career move? Well, I'll tell you, um, as I said before, I am somewhat rebellious. And with that rebelliousness comes a curiosity of what else can I do? And that is that was at my core. And in about 1977 or 78, Herb, my boss, knew I was getting a bit bored and a friend of his was making a film and he was making... I think what we'd call a soft porn film today, but it was a bit <laughs> um, It starred Virginia Mayo. It was called The French Quarter. My husband at the time went and worked on the film and I was quite seriously, I was bored. The only thing that I could do in fashion, frankly, at that particular moment was have my own company and I didn't want it. I didn't want it. I worked for the best. I was taught by the best, the most generous, who brought me to this point. And I was curious about what else I could do. And so I went to visit my husband. They didn't have a costume designer. And they said, Ellen, will you you do the the costumes? And I said, yes, 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 yes. Not knowing what I was doing. And, And I went back to New York and I said to her. Herb, I'm going to go to New Orleans and do these costumes. And he said, what the heck are you talking about? You have like, wait, What's going to happen in the design room? I said, okay, I'm going to stay this week. I'm going to put so much work into the design room. It will carry you for seven weeks. And I promise I'll come back if I need to, but please let me have this experience. That's how generous he was. And he said, yes, of course. Okay don't know if it was really, of course, but he knew I was he couldn't stop me. And it was all kind of a family affair. So I went to New Orleans. The movie took place, I think, in 1910. I knew nothing about anything, quite seriously, nothing. And so my husband had a friend at Brooks Van Horn, which was still in business, a woman named Athena. And my husband said, call Athena, she'll help. She did. I went back to New York, pulled a huge amount of clothes. She gave it to us for virtually nothing. The film was $450,000. So there was nothing. I found a seamstress in New Orleans who could make clothes and costumes, did research. Everybody wore clothes, but there was the house of ill repute. So there was uh, <laughs> little camisoles and bloomers and things of appropriate for the time. and what, And I had to do the wardrobe on set. And that was really kind of nutty because I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Yeah, continuity and... <laughs> continuity and pins in my fingers and blood all over the place. But uh, I just had the time of my life. I absolutely, Cassidy, knew nothing. And what I did learn very quickly was what the camera sees, what the director wants or hopes for, and how to think on your feet, but really how to think on your feet in the moment and not to get married to anything because things change. And there was a wonderful man who was an associate producer, and I believe the first AD as well, who said, "I think you should go back to New York, and I think you should learn how to do commercials because that will give you just a second hand, an experience. You you think quickly as it is, but that's even a quicker process. So I think you should do that." And I so I went back to New York, and I and I went to Herb, and I said, "Herb, this is what I think." Is the next step, and he said, "You're not going to the next step until you can make a living." And so, what he was—he allowed me to do was freelance, still in fashion, and begin my career as a costume designer. I worked for a great company in commercials named uh, Myers Griner Cuesta, Did brilliant work. Three directors that were the pinnacle or part of the pinnacle. And I learned how to think on my feet about a year later. Of course, I got bored again. And um, Christy Zia was asked to do fame. And she asked me to be her assistant. And I said, yes, and (laughs) um, absolutely. And that was Alan Parker. And that experience was so instrumental to everything that was to come after. It changed my life. It changed my perspective. It changed my direction without a question, without a question. And we had a great, great, great time doing that film. And then I was asked right at the end of that, if I would do the pilot for Fame, the TV show. Because some of those actors crossed over. And I said, yes. And that must have been 1982-ish, I think. 81, 82. Um, You know when it was? It was the year that John Lennon died, was killed. That's when that was. I remember that very clearly because I was in a cab going to work that morning. Um, From there, I was now a costume designer.
0: You were an assistant, like you said, just a couple of times before you were a designer. You're the mastermind of so many costumes, of so many well-known 80s and 90s films, not to mention, you know, 21st century. We're going to get there in a little bit, but Fatal Attraction, Wall Street, Basic Instinct, Speed, Showgirls, Twister, the list really goes on. I have so many questions for you, but something that I found really remarkable about your work within the contemporary film genre is that you're not operating with off-the-rack clothing in a lot of instances for your lead characters. You're actually designing it and then having your team make it, which makes more sense to me now that I know that you came from the fashion design world. But can you just talk about why this has always been important to you? Because I feel like that remains a staple of your work.
2: I find that I have, it's even in those days, with Wall Street particularly, with Michael Douglas's Gordon Gecko. All of those clothes had to be made simply because nothing existed off the rack. Michael Douglas, in my imagination, was a, a character that needed to be have somewhat of an influence of the Duke of Windsor meets a movie star. And Michael was, he was popular, but he wasn't a movie star, movie star at that moment in time. Everyone had not climbed to the highest point yet, you know? And so now the second film with Michael is now Wall Street. Um, Meeting Oliver Stone was a trip. He was, he was just a trip. And um, the image of Michael was very important to create. And where was I going to find it? There are things that have been written that Alan Flesser did the wardrobe for Michael Douglas in Wall Street.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up because I feel like that's still perpetuated today and
2: it's not true. No, it's (laughs) not true. So what happened was is that I looked high and low for what, what needed to occur and no one was really doing it. And somebody made the the suggestion to go to Alan Flusser's studio. And I did. And I went, Oh, now this looks quite interesting. And we began to talk. We were close to shooting. I asked, would you make his clothes for me? And he said yes, and he charged us for it, financial. It was not a, a give. It was the get, because I loved the idea of what he was doing. Based on your designs, though,
0: you, you provided the designs and he made well, your
2: design. It was a combination. It, let's, I mean, this is really where it's at. He made a particular silhouette. I wanted that silhouette. I wanted it in particular fabrications, colors, et cetera. I wanted the shirtings in particular colors, et cetera. And he had lovely accessories to pick from. We picked from that. He made, his tailors made the garments. We made adjustments from that. Was it a collaboration? I don't call it a collaboration. I, he was the source. He was a resource and a helpful one at at that. I let everybody contribute to what that final image needs to be. If I'm not seeing something, I want to know what you're thinking. What should I do? How should I change this? And I liked the particular image that he made. So we went about doing that. It was a great success. Alan Flesser went around talking to it. I I remember Liz Smith putting in her column, don't invite Ellen Mirajnik and Alan Flester to the same cocktail party for she did the costumes for Wall Street and he's claiming he did something of that nature. And I thought that that was a great thank you very much because I don't want anybody infringing on what I have just done I'm the costume designer. You're not the costume designer nor the creator. And even though you're the resource doesn't give you carte blanche to take credit. So I was quite annoyed.
0: Yeah, and as a costume designer, you have you're creating this vision, right? And it's using the costume, it's so much more than just the clothing. It's how you use the clothing with to tell the story. Exactly,
2: and it told a great story. And it put Michael in a Entirely different point of view as an actor, as a character, as well, a character that everyone wanted to be, actually. Um, I remember in January of that year after the film was released, and I received a, a call from the fashion editor of the LA Times saying, Do you realize that every 30 year old guy? on his way up the ladder only <laughs> wants to look like gordon gecko michael brought the hairstyle that he wore as gordon gecko because of pat riley who was coach of the lakers at that time and they were friends and he thought that was a good idea and it was a brilliant idea because it all completed the idea of gordon gecko and i guess then history wrote itself you know <laughs> i love this film in particular because
0: it really shows the power of costume design and not just as this essential storytelling device but also its ability to transcend cinema and influence pop culture and the clothing real people wear because this is still a touchstone for menswear today if you google this there are still articles being written about this iconic look. So you've done, okay, let's say everything from suspense thrillers to action adventure to comedy. You did What Women Want, Exit to Eden, which is one of those obscure, but still really fun films that I love. And then you've also done a lot of film in my personal favorite category, which is fantasy. You designed one of my all-time favorite movies, which is the 97 Cinderella, which they just released from The Vault. Yes, right. Right. <laughs> when I found out you designed that, it, it kind of made sense because obviously we're going to talk about Bridgerton, but I think there's a lot of parallels with those projects in terms of what they did for film at, and TV at the time. Disney's Cinderella was incredibly groundbreaking and in that, you know, it had a Black Cinderella, Fairy Godmother, Brandy and Whitney Houston. You did this incredibly fun take on the costumes which was like this blend of fantasy but I also noticed a lot of historical silhouettes referenced. Could you just talk a little bit about that particular project and your approach because obviously this stands in stark contrast to you know designing for Wall Street for instance.
2: I remember being really 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 thrilled to be hired to do Cinderella because I love a Cinderella story generally speaking. It's one of the oldest fairy tales, but I love it. And I love the group that asked me to participate. And it was Craig and Neil Murren, and a director named Rob Iscoff. And so we sat around the table and we talked about it. And we thought, what is this going to actually become? Meaning, what is the tone? What is the tone that we want to create? And actually, what Rob really focused on, which we then took with us, was Art Nouveau. But what we explored was we explored Klimt, we explored everything, Art Nouveau. We explored the art, the French art. We explored all of the background and the research we really kind of drilled down on what was relevant for what we needed to really look at and that came to color and shape and the one thing that i do how i work is this is that once i understand the entirety of what the director's vision is producer's vision is i see the whole and then i go into the micro I don't start at the micro and hope that it equals the whole. So in doing so, we created somewhat of a painting of what we believe the world of Cinderella could be. Now, what happens when I work is that I use the research as the basic foundation. So Art Nouveau and the basic research of silhouette shape, color form was absolutely inspiration. I'd look at paintings, I'd look at posters, I'd look at many different things. And there were some prerequisites, of course, with Cinderella. And that is when it's a Disney Cinderella, without a question, the blue dress. And that's the Cinderella dress. Or by that time, it had become the blue dress. And that was clear. She also got married and she also was cinders in the basement. I think the most fun in the costumes and the most mashup of costumes came with the step family. Oh, they're so fun. They were so fun. Bernadette Peters. I mean, she she was sensational. I remember her coming into California. For five hours or six hours, she was in the recording studio. Then came to us, and stood in a fitting for another two and a half to three hours and did not move. And that was a true professional, really a true professional, and she allowed us to create in a way that was quite free formed. Uh, based on what we had had designed the fabrications we found were sensational and they were fun and and bold and it just fit it just fit and of course Vivian was one of the stepsisters was just she was like olive oil and so (laughs) wonderful And our other stepsister was so fun. Now, what I learned on that show was because we did not have money, I learned how to reuse costumes in a way that could be reused and not be obvious. And so I didn't have to make tons. I had to make the right thing that could be then reinterpreted into another costume which was great. It was a great exercise for me. And I loved it. I guess it's most like a theater production. And then came Whoopi Goldberg and God bless her soul as the queen. And we had made, because Dixie was genius at, at crafts as well. We had made these fabulous jewelry pieces that she could wear, the queen could wear. And we did her fitting. The fitting was quite successful. We showed her the jewelry. She said, no, I am the queen. We're going to Harry Winston. You're going to see see this particular person and take whatever you want, whatever they allow you to take, which we (laughs) did. And we brought it back with the guard. And she said, now I am the queen. And that was, it was just funny. It wasn't, it, it was just great. And subsequently, um, you know, Rob Marshall was that's the choreographer on that particular film who did beautiful, beautiful work. And it was a love fest. It was just, it was a love fest. And everything that was created was quite original. And an interp- what maybe the most important thing was, it was an interpretation of Art Nouveau. And what we were allowed to do was interpret it in the most artistic way that would fill the frame. And that's how we did it. And that's, I guess, the first time I was able to do an easy mashup, a mashup of time, place, fabrication, storytelling through costume in the best solution for the the overall film, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it was just amazing. And the costumes just transported you to this other time and place. It was so magical. It stuck with me, I know, all these years and so many people. And like I said, once I found out having watched Bridgerton, which we're going to talk about now, and then knowing that you designed Disney, I think that was over 20 years ago, it just made sense to me because you've really made a name for yourself with this incredible talent and ability to take historical inspiration maybe as a jumping off point or as a reference point or different historical influences, and then you take artistic license, right? You take them as a starting point for your reimagination and you just take them (laughs) into this entirely different world. It's incredible. You've seen this in Disney's Cinderella, which we just talked about, but also you did Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, Which had incredible costumes. You did The Greatest Showman, again, set in a period, but taken, you know, using artistic license to create this, like, other fantasy world. And then, of course, Bridgerton, which is maybe rooted in history, but as we'll talk about, I'm sure, again, you had so much artistic license with this period. Bridgerton's the most watched series in the history of Netflix, It's such an incredible show on so many levels. What an incredible undertaking in terms of costumes. But I'd love if you could just give us some insights into your design process and maybe the role historical research plays in your work. I think that we
2: broke the boundaries of watching period drama. We definitely broke those boundaries that come with watching period drama. What's most important First and foremost, there's the text, and that's the most important to begin with. Of course, talking to the creator, the writer, the producer, the director. And then comes the research. But what what Chris Van Dusen, who was the creator and the showrunner, said right off the bat: this is a bonnetless universe. This is not a history lesson. It was a show that was very different, although it had certain very, very clear mores of the time, it was very different than what you would read in an historical piece, even in a historical story, even in one of the Jane Eyre, Jane Austen type of situations. This was a bonnetless universe that was the key to it all. So John Glazer and myself began to create a book. And looked at different periods of time because one of the key words that was presented was aspirational, fresh, new audience. What are we going to do? So we created a book of what we thought we would do. And John and I have now worked together since 1997 Perfect Murder. So we obviously had each other's mindset. Clearly defined. And so the one thing that actually came to pass very, very early on was that I found the paintings of a wonderful young painter named Geneve Figgis. And her work inspired me. And it inspired me because this is prior to the book. It inspired me because she did these scenarios that were fabulous, absolutely glorious in color. And they were ironic and they were, they were of a period that was similar, but they just had a feel, an emotional feel that was our show. And that's, that was the real jumping off point into creating what we were going to do. The key point in love of Genevieve's paintings. Now, I call her Genevieve, but she might be really Genevieve. I'm not quite certain to this day. We correspond, but I don't really. Um, I've been corrected on the pronunciation, but it doesn't matter. Miss Figus is brilliant. And what I took away was this fresh palette coupled with blurred lines. And how she blurred the lines, I knew had to be the key in creating the world of Bridgeton. In other words, there was a fluidity, there was an illusion, there were things that felt magical. You didn't really know what you were exactly looking at. And that was, I think, for me, the key. We then proceeded to make this book. And what it was is that from the research, we took the research. We interpreted the research. We found two food groups. The Bridgetons were macaroons, French macaroons with a bit of sugar on top. Oh, I love it. Sugar <laughs> and the Featheringtons were the most acidy fruit you could imagine. So <gasps> going Brilliant. from there, we <laughs> created this palette and, and then created this book that best represented the film without specifically hitting a character. It was a look and it was a feel and it wasn't just a mood board. It was like 30 pages of what this world could become. Everybody loved it. Everybody was on the same page and it subsequently became the Bible for the world of Bridgerton. And that included Hair design, production design, cinematography, the whole ball of wax, inclusive of being a great reference point for every actor that walked into the fitting room. Because it it liberated them in a way through this vibrancy and this bit of, uh, I can't say otherworldliness, but a fantastical and very kind of fluid interpretation of what the period was. Now, Bridgerton was an adaptation of Julia Quinn's novels. And what Chris wrote, we adapted to become our story. So it's all an interpretation and an adaptation of what 1813 was throwing away precisely throwing away, I should say, the rules of a period drama and allowing the audience to see a fluidity and a romance that was nothing like they'd ever seen in a period drama. So I don't really necessarily call it fantasy and I don't call it a period drama. I think that what we created was a whole new arena to be able to experience a story that takes place at another time.
0: Yeah, and I think it's Women's Wear Daily you were quoted as saying that Bridgerton is like a big ice cream sundae with all the toppings. It's frothy, delicious, and total escapism. And I could not agree more with that. You're literally transported into an entirely different world. While the historical references are there, um, it kind of sets the basis, but for your all of y'all's, you know, artistic vision and everything came together, the sets, the costumes, the acting, the storyline to just transport us for, I think it was eight episodes that I watched in two days.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, That was really something that, you know, there's a bit of magic that has to go along with things. And, And the magic of that also came at a particular time when the world was in its darkest hour and it was a Christmas present because it was released on Christmas day.
0: It's true. It was a gift for sure.
2: But you know, one of my, one of the greatest feelings and greatest compliments that I received during that period of time, actually an extended period of time as, as time went on was that it affected everyone not only here in the United States, but around the world. And it brought so much joy during this time of darkness that we all lived that it was so gratifying and fulfilling because of that.
0: Yeah, it really was a gift and something that everyone watched and then watched again, in my case, just to have that feeling of escapism to just be transported for that period to this time and place was really, really special. I can't let you go today without talking about your very most recent production, which is Amazon Cinderella. And what are a few costumes or a few things that listeners can look forward to when they watch this film, if they have not already?
2: Well, I think that the new Cinderella, the the Cinderella that is on Amazon presently, is a delight. It is just a delight. It is not Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. It is a Cinderella for the 21st century in that the music is modern. The music is a compilation. There's new music in it, as well as music that is recognizable, all reinterpreted and remixed and so on. That being said, it is our first Latina Cinderella, Camila Cabello, and she's brilliant and she's just adorable. She's an adorable, adorable Cinderella who has ambition, who has deep passion in her heart to become something and not just sit in the basement nor become a princess. So, that in itself is something new. And as I said before, I love Cinderella stories, but I think that that is why I was so attracted to it because there was a new message about Cinderella and the costumes. I have to say that this actually was a very big surprise in my psyche because (laughs) yes, she had great ambition and her great ambition was to be a designer and dressmaker and I had to design the costumes that she would have designed. <laughs> and and Cassidy, this is God's truth, is that I was stumped. I was stumped at a particular point because this also, the production was also a very quick production because originally Camila was supposed to go on a world tour. So we only had a short amount of time. Of course, until the pandemic came. But that being said, I was stumped, and I did not know we would all have meetings and have meetings with the studio because it it was Sony at that time. And they'd say, "Ellen, do you know what the dress is going to be yet?"
0: And I'd say, "No." <laughs> the dress, right? You're talking about the like the dress. Cinderella transformation but it dress. Would not be- <laughs>
2: All I knew is that it would not be a blue dress because we wouldn't go near Disney, right? It was a Sony production. And so I'd say, no, I don't know what the dress is. <laughs> I promise, I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about it. And that being said, we illustrated and illustrated and illustrated and once understanding that all of this had to be very different than what the rest of the world was at that time indicated that we needed to actually think about Ella's designs as fresh and new and moving into a new world without a particular period of time. Our film takes place in what I call fairy tale time more than any other. other period of time and what that means is that it's a mashup really of many different decades and i think that that's fun and so the the design of the dress and her other dresses boy, it stumped me i would say for quite some time i was really troubled by it and then one morning we were at jimmy chu who gracefully did the shoe the Glass Slipper. Oh, wow. Yes, they were the partner in the Glass Slipper. And working with Sandra Chow was absolutely a marvelous collaboration. And we knew what it needed to be. And I am a lover, if you haven't noticed, but I'll say it. I am a lover of sparkle. There's not enough sparkle in the world, <laughs> And sparkle lights up your light and your life and the amount of sparkle that's created brings your brain to another frequency a higher frequency so I'm a lover of that and while working on the shoe and working on the design of the shoe and working on the placement of the Swarovski crystals I went well this is the way to go this is the way to go and frankly the design the Swarovski placement design on the shoe was the dress's inspiration. Oh, wow. That's lovely. And we created, Melanie Carter was the, an extraordinary, extraordinary dress, our cutter for Cinderella. And we talked it through. Uh, she had an amazing team that was able to do everything. And with that, we were able, I said, I want to recreate what's on the shoe. I want to create it on the bodice. And we did. And then we looked at the sketches and we thought for a minute, well, it needs to dance. It needs to move. It needs to come from flowers. It needs to become organic. It needs to be swirly. It needs to have curved lines. It needs all of these words. And what the heck was this going to mean? And Benjamin, who was my illustrator, drew something from our conversation. And I said, yes, continue on. And working with Melanie, it was totally an organic process that we were able to do this skirt that looked like it was born from nature in a way. But, of course, sparkled and actually had a floating feeling a translucent feeling that you could, was not heavy. It felt light. It wasn't like anybody else's costumes. They weren't like anybody else's costumes. They were costumes that spoke to a different time. It spoke to a forward time. It, fo- it spoke to her character and it spoke to the difference between her, what she wanted to achieve, where she was headed, And her love and ambition, and her love, her love, her passion, her love, because she loved the man she met, but she knew where she wanted to go and she wanted to break the rules. The one thing that was so intriguing in Cinderella with Camila was that we had the opportunity once again to break boundaries, and what we did. It was the genius of Kay Cannon and her writing and hopes, wishes, and dreams, and everybody involved to lure Billy Porter into the mix and have Billy become the fairy godmother, or better known as the Fab G. And he is, without question, the most extraordinary Fab G that. I think we will ever behold that being said, he originally comes as a result as a Monarch butterfly come to life and in designing that costume, it had to do many different things. And I, we designed about five or six different versions and Billy and I spoke and I showed it to him in the direction that we were going and he picked one thing and then we just made a couple of variations on it while making it. And all of it was as if angels sat on my shoulders because the fabric that his costume is made from, I found, and it was the monarch butterfly color, which how many times does that happen? And I didn't have to do anything with it. And it was double-faced. It was a double-faced fabric with that beautiful gold, orange, golden color, and it was double-faced with black. Found the exact right color of the sequins for his trousers. Worked with Sandra again at Jimmy Choo for his platform boots that the toe was covered in a monarch butterfly. And an amazing company called Asta Labs out of Italy that did the amazing collar that he wears. And of course, that particular maker was somebody named Barrack Stribling out of New York, actually New Jersey. And we were also worked together for 25 years. So we did Billy's fittings over FaceTime. With that, he loved it. He stepped into it. He loved it. When Barak and John fit him in his first fitting, I was concerned about the train being too long because of the transformation. And he did a walk for me. And I said, should we change it just slightly? And he said, "Uh uh-uh, a train. I need every bit of a train. You don't touch the train. It is perfect. But what was most important to the whole entire costume, being that he was the Fab G and that he was Billy Porter, is that magic has no genre. And he was very, very, very insistent in a wonderfully inspired way that the Fab G be both masculine and feminine at the same time. And subsequently, I think we succeeded in it. And his costume is, I think his costume is magnificent. And um, he is magnificent as a character, as Billy Porter, whomever he is playing, whatever he contributes, his inspiration is, oh, it travels, just the vibe of it travels all throughout the entire space that you're in. Um, when working with him. And he knows how to use his costume in the way it needs to be used to express what needs to be expressed. And he was the one in terms of the Fab G that created magic. And I think as he emerges onto screen, he is magic. He creates magic. And it is an extraordinary fairy godmother, better known as the Fab Jeep.
0: Yeah, absolutely wonderful. And he was an absolute
2: vision, I have to say. He is a vision. He is 100% part of Billy's whole entire spirit, which he inhabits immediately becoming the character is so infectious and intoxicating that you just become part and parcel of of everything that he's about and the character is about. And I was really inspired to give Billy a fab G that will go down in history along with Whitney's very godmother so that they are they both will resonate in history forever because bill is the fab g <laughs> no doubt for many many years to come so for me that cinderella which has great dancing great music great fun she was going to be the cinderella to break all rules so In the bigger scheme of things, that basically represents me in the finest way.
0: I was going to say absolutely on so many levels, I think this film and that dress epitomizes what makes you so singular and your approach to design and your career, everything. Um, This has been such a treat. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and really just exploring this four decades plus career of bringing us movie magic. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, Cassidy, it's been my pleasure and everything that I learned about What Happy Legs actually did in the 70s is very exciting to me to really kind of review and be part of my history. So, I really, really thank you for that. I thank you for being such a great conversationalist and interviewer. And this has been such a joy to be able to think about all that has occurred (laughs) over the course of time. And I just, I am passionate about creating. I'm passionate about creating costumes, creating clothing, and most importantly, designing worlds.
0: And we're all indebted to you and so grateful to you for sharing your talent with us Um, for many years to come. I am sure I'm looking forward to all your future projects. Thank you again so much.
2: Oh, big hugs and kisses. Thank you so much. (laughs) I really appreciate it. Thank you, Cassidy.
0: April, I cannot tell you what a fun experience this conversation was. We actually talked for two plus hours. So forgive me for having to cut it down a little bit. And (laughs) as one can imagine, she has so many wonderful stories to share from her prolific career. And what a pleasure to have learned so much about her early career in fashion, April. That was such a surprise. On our recent Rise of the American Designer episode, we actually talked about how important the 1970s was to bringing visibility to American fashion design talent. And she was front and center in this conversation. So, so cool. And you pair this with her costume design career, and she truly has had this seismic impact on visual culture in so many different ways.
1: Absolutely. And these are the stories that we love to discover and find out and like excavate for our listeners. So that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the influence of iconic film fashions in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you would like to email us, you can do so at dressed at iHeartMedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episodes. You can also follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore.
0: And if you have a moment and want to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support, Dress listeners. And as always, special thanks, of course, to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. More Dress coming your way on Thursday.
1: Dressed, the history of fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from
2: iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.